I was asking a couple of, uh, or a handful of brothers earlier, what, why is it slim pickings tonight, right? We have a number of men missing, some tables empty, and so then we figured out that tonight is the first night where women's Bible study is not meeting. Ah, oh, what's up with that, right? So women of faith is meeting, but not women, uh, the women's Bible studies. So I want you to know, for those of you brothers who are watching online, our eyes are on you, okay? <laughs> and we are tallying up on live stream how many guys are actually on there watching right now to make sure that you guys are actually still live streaming, okay? So just messing. We're not, we're not doing that, okay? We don't do that kind of stuff here. But thank you for those of you who are here, brothers, and just for your faithfulness for a whole semester already of putting up with me, the, the new guy here. And I hope that it's been helpful and beneficial thus far to be in the Gospel of Mark. So open your Bibles to John 12. John 12, verses 1 through 11 is our text for tonight. And the title of this message is Humble, Hardened, or Hostile? Humble, Hardened, or Hostile is the question I want you to answer today for yourself before the Lord, okay? We see all of these types of people and these specific categories of hearts, if you will, in this particular text. And I've told you throughout the study of the Gospel of John that while it's true that Jesus is always the central focus of every passage in John, we can also say that this is the case here, of course, that Jesus is the central focus uh, in John's Gospel. While that's true, we can also say that this particular passage has a twofold focus in allowing us to see real people through the eyes of Jesus, to see the attitudes of people here, to see their actions, to see their perspective with regards or with relation to Jesus and to who he is and what he's done. It's these reactions to Jesus, which are a huge emphasis in our, in our text, verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 12 here. Not only should we observe these individuals and their reactions to Jesus so that we might um, learn about their faults or their victories, their weaknesses or their strengths with relation to Jesus, but also so that we might examine our own hearts tonight. And I want us to do that, okay? As we look at this particular text, this is more of a hot kind of a, of a message, if you will, where we really want to really put our hearts before the Lord on the table. And I want to challenge you tonight to really ask yourself uh, or ask the Lord, Lord, which one of these am I? Am I the humble? Am I the hardened? Or am I the hostile person toward Jesus Christ? And so wasting no time, I want you to first, I want to first of all have you write this down. See humility at work here in our text so as to emulate it. I want to encourage you to see humility at work, first of all, so as to emulate it. This is in verses 1 through 3. Our text says that six days, verse 1, before, or six days, yes, before the Passover, and so this would have been likely, most likely, Saturday, six days before our Lord will be betrayed. That's the timing of this particular narrative here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, up until now, Bethany was a little-known town, about two miles from Jerusalem, not highly touted, as we've said before, not known in a great way. But now, as John writes about 85 to 90, AD 90, 85 or so, Bethany's claim to fame is that this is the little town where Jesus raised 
Lazarus from the dead. Amazing. And so Jesus is, is in Bethany. But he isn't in the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. How do we know? Because Matthew and Mark's parallel accounts tell us that Jesus was in the home of a man by the name of what? Simon the leper. Now, obviously, we know that by this time, Simon was no longer a leper, right? Or he couldn't host a dinner of this particular sort here in his home. He couldn't be around other people, including Jesus and his disciples. So he's really an ex-leper whom Jesus had, had healed. And so this man, perhaps out of gratitude for Jesus having healed him, as well as for what Jesus did with Lazarus, he holds a special dinner in his home for Jesus and most likely for his disciples. Look at verse 2. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there in the home of Simon the leper. Notice the plural they. They gave a dinner. Who else is there? Verse 2 says that, that Martha served Jesus and his disciples who were there as well. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. And so here again is this well-known family who Jesus loves and cares for deeply, along with Simon, the ex-leper, if you will, and they're all there. But then, please take note, everyone really takes a back seat in what happens next. As in, as in, in a movie, the camera zooms in on the actions of the younger sister, Mary, who is also there, present at this dinner. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Hmm. We need to pause right there, men, to understand the, the significance and the weightiness of the action here performed by Mary. First, realize that the precious value of the product itself that Mary pours all over Jesus I mean, this is not your secondhand store, per, store perfume or fragrance, okay? This is not uh, imitation stuff we're talking about here that Mary uses to anoint Jesus. No, this is fine ointment or perfume. This is perfume most likely imported from a faraway land like, like India. And we know this because it says in the text that it was made from pure nard. Nard was a plant from, from India or another nearby country native to that foreign land. And this is why it is so expensive, this particular perfume. It's pure, it's fine, it's uncorrupted, it's unadulterated. We're not talking about cheap or, or fake stuff here. This is top-of-the-line type of ointment or perfume, right? And note the text tells us that it was a, a, a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard. But the Greek word there, translated pound, actually indicates the equivalent of three fourths of a pound or approximately 12 ounces of perfume, 12 ounces of ointment. It's a considerable amount. And on top of that, it says that the perfume had been stored, according to Mark's account, in an alabaster vial. The perfume was, was contained in some kind of a, of a flask, a container made of precious stone or expensive marble. And such flasks were, were used in order to preserve the fresh smell or, or pure scent of fine perfumes or ointments or oils of this nature. So, I mean, even the flask, the container is valuable, right? So this is a precious possession that is of great value to Mary. Now listen, all of this detail is not just so that we might grow in knowledge 
as to the intricate facts about this particular product that she uses. All of this detail puts in perspective the significance and the weightiness of what Mary does. Look at verse 3. It says that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Not a ladylike thing to do. She loosens her, her hair, gets on her knees, and she begins to anoint Jesus, probably beginning with his feet. In those days for meals, as you know, the, the table was set up in a sort of horseshoe-shaped um, uh, shape. People are, are in a reclined position here. They're reclining on their sides, and so their feet would be away from the table itself, making it easy to uh, wash people's feet. And that was the common practice for, for servants, the lowly servants of the particular host in that host home, for them to, to wash the feet of the guests because of conditions being dusty and, and dirty. People would need to have their feet washed as they came to be guests in somebody's home. And there was plenty of time to do this. The meals, as you know, the, these Jewish meals were, were long, they were prolonged, they, people enjoyed a full meal, they lingered, conversing with one another, interacting with one another, seeking to know one another. The meal was unrushed. And as a side note, as I was studying this, this is so foreign these days, isn't it? These types of meals, we're all about fast food kinds of meals, aren't we? But they were unrushed and undistracted. To spend time with one another over a meal, enjoying the meal together in the context of your home and getting to know one another, this they did. I think we can learn something, even glean something as a side note for us today from these particular Jewish meals. And so here they are, as the guests were laying in this reclined position with their feet away from the table, this facilitated the washing of the feet of guests. And so watch this here. Here's Mary... With the posture and the attitude of a, of a humble, lowly servant brothers. Performing the most menial task, right, of anointing the feet of Jesus. Her attitude is a humble one. She's not concerned about prominence. She's not concerned about her privileged position as a member of a prominent family. As, as, as Jesus, the ultimate priority is sitting there. And she wants to worship him. Her posture is one of self-abandonment. She could care less about what, what, what other people think about her who are sitting there. Doing the un-Jewish woman type of thing, right? That she performs here. And her worship and devotion is, is lavish, and it's extravagant. Listen, she could care less about how much the perfume costs. She holds nothing back from Jesus. In fact, she took that perfume and she poured it all over Jesus. That's what the parallel account of Matthew or Mark 14 verse 3 says. That she broke the vial, most likely the top or the head of that flask, to facilitate the process of pouring this ointment upon Jesus. And she poured it all over his head, Mark tells us. Mark 14, verse 3. It was all over his body. This is unrestrained but genuine. This is lavish. This is extravagant what this woman does for Jesus, whom she loves and she's devoted to. Listen to me. To her, Christ was of more value, more precious, more worthy than anything that she owned. And if she would have had more perfume, she would have used that as well, right? Right? I don't think Mary was giving Jesus her leftovers here. 
Mary was giving Jesus her best because he was absolutely worthy of the best. But this humble woman holds nothing back from our Lord. She spares nothing to show him how much he means to her, to show him honor, devotion, and worship. So much so that verse 3 says that the, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I mean, this, this scent was permeating. This was a pleasant scent which filled the home of Simon the ex-leper. Do you remember when a different woman did something similar? In Luke chapter 7, turn there with me. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. I love this text. This is a different instance when this happens. It's a different place, a different location. It's a different individual who performs an act of worship upon Jesus. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. It's also in a different context, right? It's in the home of a Pharisee. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at, at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, most likely a prostitute, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Luke seven thirty nine. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more. Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. Wow. Here's a woman who recognized her utter sinfulness and who was in her midst who loved Jesus much because she understood the infinite value of Jesus Christ, right? Amazing. She was a humble and broken woman who cherished and treasured the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Mary, here in our context in John chapter 12. And I wonder, brothers, I wonder how many, how many of us treasure and cherish Christ like this tonight. I wonder how many of us actually pursue Jesus fervently and zealously each and every day. And when we do not, and our hearts are not there, and we're going through the, through the motions, that we recognize that and we actually come to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me that I do not treasure you and cherish you as I should. I've asked you before, how is your, your love life tonight? Not your romantic life, right, with your wife. I'm asking you, how is your, your love life 
in the sense of your relationship with, with Jesus, how fervent is it? Are you the type of a follower of Jesus, worshiper of Jesus, who is devoted to Jesus like this in the light of everything that he has done for you? In the light of the fact that he went to the cross to pay for your sins? Frankly, I think some of us have forgotten where we came from. Some of us have forgotten how bad we were. Some of us have forgotten about how deeply in trouble we were prior to coming to know Jesus Christ. But brother, do you remember tonight your, the, your deliverance from your sin? Do you remember tonight the, the sweetness of forgiveness at the moment of conversion? The realization that, that God had put his son on the cross to pay for your sins so that you would be forgiven and, and that he would remove the guilt that you deserve for your own sin. Have you forgotten about the sweetness of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ tonight? Where are you tonight in this? And do you remember how precious Jesus was to you at the moment of, of conversion? How you used to sing to him, even with terrible voices like mine, right? But you didn't even care who was, who was next to you, right? There was a brother back in the day, uh, early on in my Christian walk. And man, this brother sang. I mean, we would be singing on a Sunday morning, and this was him. I am not exaggerating, okay? He'd be singing, and he'd be singing in my ear, Lord, we love you, we worship, and he'd be yelling in my ear, right? Just oblivious, and he'd turn the other way, and he'd do the same thing. And listen, he was genuinely worshiping Jesus. He treasured Christ. He, tr he, he cherished Jesus. I wonder how many of us sing like that on Saturdays in worship services or Sunday mornings whenever you go and you sing to the Lord. Do you sing out of a heart that is just so much just captivated by the glory of Christ in the light of the fact that he died for your sins on the cross, brother? What is the state of your heart tonight toward Jesus? Do you humbly worship and are devoted to him as these women were? Listen, if you are hardened tonight to Christ, return to your first love. Confess your sin to the Lord, even as a follower of Christ, and confess to him, Lord, I have been going through the motions. I have been walking in pride, as we're going to see next here. Please renew me. Please return me to the, the joy and simplicity of what it means to, to worship you, my Redeemer. Well, we're given the contrast then. I want you to see this contrast. Secondly, see, see pride at work so as to guard yourself from it. That's your second point. See pride at work so as to guard yourself from it. This is in verses 4 through 8. We've seen humility at work in this humble, devoted woman named Mary. Let's see pride at work. Look at verse 4. But, by contrast, in other words, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, and then here's an inspired commentary by the apostle John. He who was about to betray him, he says, and it's put in parentheses in our Bibles. This is John's commentary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know this information, don't we? We know Judas is one of Jesus' disciples, we know that, that he is going to betray Jesus. We know those facts. John, why do you tell us that? To underscore the audacious nature of what this man is going to do. 
Judas Iscariot, one of his own disciples. Can you believe it? He's going to betray Jesus. That man who heard Jesus' sweet teaching, that man who saw Jesus' amazing, awesome power, that man who witnessed the compassion and the tender mercies of Jesus towards the least of these, including the poor, that man, one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot, is going to betray Jesus. And John will now show us how proud and how hardened this man, Judas Iscariot, was. As he sees what Mary did, how does Judas Iscariot respond? Look at verse 5. Judas said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? One denarii was equivalent to one day's wage. 300 denarii was almost a year's worth of, of wages. It was almost your full year's salary. This is how, how valuable this perfume was. By the way, the disciples too, in a moment of weakness, expressed their disapproval of Mary as well. According to Matthew 26, verse 8, the same parallel account, the disciples were indignant. And it says in Matthew 26, verse 8, that they even said, why this waste? Boy, talk about a, an, an indirect insult toward, against Jesus, right? Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Oh, how noble of them, right? Sounds very noble, at least at first glance, doesn't it? Maybe the disciples meant it. But John is quick to point out that in Judas's case, verse 6, Judas had said this not because he cared about the poor, but because, because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Boy, John pulls no punches, huh? He calls him out. Judas could care less about the poor. What was at the heart of, of his outrage was, was covetousness. A root sin that leads to all kinds of other sins is covetousness and greediness. It's why 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 warns us against the love of money. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, right, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain or a pang. The love of money. Nothing wrong with making money. Nothing wrong with money in and of itself, right? Procuring money so that you might give back to the work of the Lord and give to others and express compassion through your generosity. Nothing wrong with that, but it's the love of it. It's the elevating of money above the priorities of Jesus. It's the counting money and, and, and filthy mammon more important than worshiping Christ, right? It's having misplaced priorities where you elevate in an idolatrous kind of a way the pursuit of money and you basically dismiss the commandments of God for your life. Your responsibility toward the Lord and towards other people. It's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. Well, this led Judas to be covetous of heart and that led to deceit in his life. And thievery. It led to him withholding from God what belonged to God alone. And the reality is that Judas wanted, no, wanted to help no one, let alone the poor. None of that money would have ever gotten to any, anybody if he had his own way, right? He just wanted to feed his own greed. Listen, brothers, in short, Judas was a man with a hardened heart. And this must have been so subtle, so slow. So imperceptible, right? 
And I really want to camp here for a few minutes. About the importance of guarding our hearts as men from becoming hardened. From becoming callous. From becoming complacent in the Christian life. You know, I've often wondered in the case of Judas Iscariot. What if it would have been possible for Judas to rewind his life two years and see his future actions? You know what I mean? If he would have, would he have believed Judas Iscariot that he could have gotten to this point? If he could see ahead to the future, the video of this moment in our text and his subsequent betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, would Judas Iscariot believe that he was capable of growing so proud and so hardened that he could actually get to the point where he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Would he believe it? But that is how subtle and how slow and how imperceptible a growing hardened heart is, isn't it? We've seen it in our own lives. We've seen it in the lives of other people. We've seen it. We've witnessed it. Family members, people that we love, friends. This is how a hardened heart happens. It's slow. It's incremental. It's subtle. It's imperceptible. What's the old saying, right? Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny or a future, right? There's a downward spiraling effect, brothers, that our sin has where our hearts could be in danger of progressively and increasingly and incrementally and even imperceptibly. You're not even realizing that this is happening, that you might grow callous and hardened in the Christian life as a man of God. This happens to all of us to some capacity or another. And when this happens, eventually you will find yourself doing things in the present that you never would have imagined doing. Like the guy I once counseled who confessed to having an affair to me. And he said to me, I never thought I would do this, Pastor Kempis. I never thought that this could happen. Do you know how many times, brothers, I've heard that from the lips of people that I've counseled or similar words, especially men like you and I, flesh and blood? Have you ever met somebody who said, you know, I planned this all along. You ever met anybody like that? Right? Maybe there's an exception here and there, but that's not the norm, at least for a genuine follower of Jesus who wants to follow after Christ and who wants to honor Jesus, instead the norm is, I never thought I could get to this point. I never thought I could do this. I never thought it could happen to me, is the norm. But what happened? Maybe in the area of fornication or adultery, it all started with not cultivating a pure thought life, right? Right? Not proactively getting into Scripture and meditating on the Word of God. Delighting in Christ and His Word and then spending time conversing with God in prayer and communion with Him. Talking to God. It began with not cultivating your, your thinking, right? The renewing of the mind, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Then they didn't guard their hearts, specifically their eyes. They had wandering eyes. Looking around, maybe looking at things on screens or in person, 
Then that spiraled downward to being very comfortable, perhaps spending time, quality time with women, not their wives. By the way, this applies to you guys who are single too, right? Somewhere out there, if you're single, there's a woman for you. Are you walking as a one-woman man right now from the heart? So that spiraled downward to being very comfortable spending time with women, not their wives, not taking the right precautions, not taking the right parameters. Listen, they thought they would be the exception to what I call the law of relationships. Here's the law of relationships. Ready? Time plus presence plus exclusive conversation equals attachment or connection. Time plus presence, plus exclusive conversation equals attachment or connection. What do we mean? That the more you spend time with someone of the opposite sex in one another's presence in exclusive conversation with one another alone, you will become attached on a deeper level with that person no matter how much you deny that it can actually happen to you. It's the law of relationships. God has set forth that law of relationships, and it's beautiful when you meet God's person and you're God's, God's kind of person, and you meet God's person that he has for you at the right time, right? And that beautiful, intimate conversation then leads to marriage. It's beautiful within the confines and the parameters of God. But it is destructive like fire when it's with the wrong person at the wrong time for your selfish purposes. In that context, it's devastating, isn't it? And hurtful for you and for others. It's destructive, brother. Now, some people proudly deceive themselves thinking, well, they can be the exception to this. I can be the exception. Right? It's like telling yourself that if you jump off a 100-story building, that you will fly instead of of falling flat on the ground. Is that going to happen? No, it's called the law of gravity, which says that, if you, that you will fall flat on the floor, and that is the end of you. There's no way for you to fly, right? Unless you're some kind of a superhero, and we don't believe in superheroes like the ones we watch on TV, right? Or movies. You cannot undo it. This law, just because you think you'll be the exception. This is the law of relationships. And, and pity the man, the man amongst us, brothers, who thinks that you can be the exception to this truth. For you to think that you can actually play with fire and not get hurt or hurt other people, mark it, you will. You will. You will not be the exception. I've seen it many times. This is one way that pride can rear its ugly head in our lives as, as men. And perhaps you're here tonight and, and you're, you're that man. You're a genuine follower of Christ, but you have allowed pride imperceptibly to creep into your life. You have a hardened, callous heart. You are not as sensitive and tender to sin and to sinning against the Lord and displeasing him as you used to be at one point. You're okay with a little here and a little there of compromise. You're okay paying fast and lose with with God's word, not walking in loving obedience to it like you should. Practicing half-hearted obedience, which is no obedience at all. Compromise. Listen, if you don't repent as a believer, and you don't confess that to your heavenly Father, you will hurt yourself and those whom you love. 
And most importantly, you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, right? So we need to own our pride and address it before God and others. And don't think it doesn't exist in each of our hearts to some capacity or another. Don't lie to yourself tonight. Don't lie to yourself tonight. I remember the first man that ever discipled me saying to me this. He said, Kempis, watch out for pride in the Christian life. Beware of pride. And then he said this, pride is, pride is so subtle, pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it except you. <laughs> I never forgot that one, right? Especially as an 18-year-old at the time, right? It's kind of stick, stick in your head. But isn't that a fact? Pride is so subtle, so imperceptible, so slow. All that to say, brothers, beware of a hardened heart. This is so crucial for us that I want to belabor this point further, okay? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And you know the context. It's specifically the audience of the book of Hebrews. There were Jewish professing Christians here, the audience, who were actually contemplating going back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews writes them to say, don't do that. Jesus is greater and supreme and better than any of those things. He is the fulfillment of those things in the Old Testament. He is better. And then he gives them a series of warnings as well of what will happen if they actually would go that direction, right? These are genuine warnings that he gives here. And notice the first exhortation in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. It's an exhortation to, to press on to maturity. Verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. It's his way of saying pursue greater maturity in the truth. Don't grow callous. Don't grow complacent, uh, uh, a Jewish Christian, professing believer. And then, in verses 4 through 6, he gets even more serious. Here's a caution and a warning to them. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and notice, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What is he saying here? That you can lose your salvation? No. What he's saying is, is that it's perfectly possible for someone to derive benefits from Christianity, to be around, to be even around other Christians, be around God's people and derive benefits, spiritual benefits from the gathering of the saints, even from a distance from the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, though not in an indwelling kind of a way. It is perfectly possible for someone to, to taste of those things and yet not partake and digest and appropriate the truth to their lives. See, that's what he's saying. It's like your wife making an amazing meal, right? And you're going in there and just tasting a little bit. It's like, oh my goodness, honey, thank you. That is so good. But is that sufficient? No, man. You want to get two or three servings of that baby, right? And appropriate it to your stomach, so to speak, and digest it and benefit in a physical sense from that food. That is the picture here. 
that there are people who are around Christianity, who derive spiritual benefits, even serve in the church, and yet one day they walk away showing that they never were really of us, right? He says, look for the fruit, not as the basis of your salvation, but as the consequence of a right relationship with Christ. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What is he saying? The same thing that Jesus said, right? You will know them by their fruits, specifically with reference to false teachers, yes, but it applies to everything, that if you are a believer, there will be natural, necessary, supernaturally fueled by the Holy Spirit fruit in your life. Not as the basis those works of your justification, but as the consequence of the fact that you are truly, the result that you are truly in Christ. Look for the fruit. And though he has cautioned them, notice this. I love this. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, Beloved. Who do the biblical authors typically refer to as beloved? Christians, right? Beloved Christian. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust. Here's the sovereignty of God holding you by his power, right? For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Here's the point. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. He's warning them, don't even go there. You're, you're, you're contemplating the potential of going back to Judaism? No, no, no. Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient. He is enough. Don't even think about going that way. Genuine warning, genuine caution, right? And then he assures them, you're beloved, right? God is holding you. There's been fruit in your life, love and hope. There's been that fruitfulness in your life. But notice, brothers, what a warning in Hebrews chapter 6 to Christians about being careful of a hardened, callous heart rooted in self-sufficient pride, right? The kind of pride that says, I don't need anyone. I can do this on my own, or I can get close to the fire and not get, get burned. I can coddle that secret sin, and it won't affect me. Not so. Listen to me. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay, right? C.H. Spurgeon said that in a sermon, and I love it. If you don't respond to the Word of God, in other words, in obedience in those particular areas that God is revealing to you, you will grow hardened like Judas Iscariot, and you will progressively, imperceptibly become less and less sensitive to those areas of sin and to your need to draw near to God if you're not careful. And this is what happened to proud Judas. Maybe he had those moments over the course of his following Jesus, where his conscience was pricking him. He must have had those, those moments where he knew that he was in trouble in his own heart. But instead of repenting and confessing, Judas avoided his conscience. Judas told his conscience to shut up. And you say, well, the, in the sovereignty of God, though, according to the Psalms and all of that, it was, it was predetermined that Judas was, yes, amen, preach it, right? 
But then the other side to that is from the human perspective, this man was perfectly responsible for what he allowed and what he did to Jesus, right? He allowed himself to have a hardened heart. And how often we do the same in our walk with God. Listen, you may be here tonight, brother, and you know that that pet sin in your secret life is dangerous. You know that it grieves the Holy Spirit. You know that that sin or that weakness in your life that is unconfessed to God and to others, that you will never be everything that God wants you to be unless you repent of it and you confess it to the Lord and get help from other brothers who love you and who want to help you. You know that that's what you need, but you simply won't do it. Why? Because you've grown hardened in your heart and you're proud. And in your pride, you've deceived yourself to thinking, I can handle this on my own. It won't hurt me. Listen, it will hurt you and it won't just go away if you don't confess it. It simply won't, right? How many of us haven't experienced that in our own walk with the Lord? Hear me. The pathway to Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring change in our lives is humble repentance and confession. The pathway to Christ-exalting change is humble repentance. Read James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10 in your small groups when you discuss later. James 4, verses 4 through 10. He's speaking there about to, to Jewish Christians primarily, calling them to humble repentance from allowing themselves to be influenced by the world. This is what you and I need to cultivate in our lives, right? When we came to know Christ upon conversion, recognize that at conversion, you entered into a lifetime of repentance from dead works, right, to growing and maturing faith in the Lord Jesus. It's not just you repent once and that's it, right? And I don't mean this salvifically, that you've entered into a lifetime of repentance salvifically, that you're continually losing your salvation and then you repent and you get your salvation back, right? Right? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sanctification. That ongoing process of putting to death your sin by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit. And being renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you walk in loving, grateful obedience to the Lord. That's what we're talking about. Now, don't miss this. Which response to Jesus does Jesus approve of? Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave Mary alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In no way was Jesus downplaying or dismissing the need to care for the poor, right? He himself reached out to the poor and to the least of these in society like no one else has. What Jesus is saying is you won't have me around for very much longer. Very soon he's going to say my time has come. He's going to go to the cross, right? And die for sins. The principle here is that when Jesus is present, he is to be the highest priority. He is to be worshipped above all because he's worthy of our undivided attention. That's the principle. All right, we've seen humility at work so as to emulate it. Pride at work so as to guard yourself from it. Now third, write this down. See superficiality at work so as to avoid it. See superficiality at work so as to avoid it. Notice the superficiality of the masses first. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews, remember this is Passover, right? Thousands of, of Jews are around. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Think about that. It wasn't really Jesus that they came to see, right? It was Lazarus. To them, this was a sort of a spectacle, 
It's an opportunity to see Jesus, the wonder worker, and that's it for them. And Lazarus, the attraction, right? The great attraction. But they are not coming because they believe in Jesus. Because the miracle pointed to something greater about Jesus. And that they needed to believe in him and put their trust in him. In fact, next week we're going to see that many of these people were, were, who were heralding Jesus at, at his triumphal entry are some of the same people who six days later or five days later are going to be yelling at what? Crucify him. They're fickle and they're superficial. And we can attest to many people being this way, even in the church, right? There are people who attend church, who, who like what Christianity has to offer them, who love being around God's people, love the benefits that they derive from being in and around religion, but in the end, they're fickle and superficial. They don't genuinely have a heart for God or love God. This is the crowds, the crowds here in this text there are people like that in the church who when they learn that being a Christian is hard, right? And that it will cost you something, they're not willing to pay the price, so they're long gone eventually. Does that mean it's hopeless, brothers? Absolutely not. Listen, if you have family members like that, if you have dear friends like that, who have, at least from a human perspective, walked away from the Lord and seemingly don't want to have anything to do with the Lord, what should be our response to that? Prayer, right? To continue to be an instrument in the hands of the great Redeemer so that perhaps you can bring the truth to bear upon that person in love and in grace. There's always hope at the foot of the cross, right? Always hope. But you have the superficiality of the masses. Note also the superficiality of the self-righteous and hypocritical religious leaders. And I'm not going to belabor this one because we've treaded this path before about the religious leaders. But look at verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Boy, unbelievable. Jesus has performed an astounding miracle, one that they cannot deny. And what are they focusing on still? Loss of influence, loss of power, as we said last week, loss of control, loss of rights, loss of privileges with Rome. That's their focus rather than on the facts and the truth. Rather than focusing on spiritual realities and the ramifications of who Jesus is, who he says he is, they are focused on the earthly. This is the way of the world, isn't it? This is the way of the world as well. People don't embrace Jesus in our generation, also brothers, because they don't want to give up their earthly toys. But here's the thing. Even like the disciples, right? When the parallel account of Mark commented and were indignant as well toward Mary, we can lose perspective as Christians as well, right? We can lose sight of what's important because we're too fixated on the things of the world and we lose perspective. So what do we do? We, we compromise at work because we don't want to, to lose a position or we want to procure some kind of a promotion. We don't, want, we don't speak up with that neighbor because we want to, to be liked by that neighbor. We're more worried about what they think of us. All of these show you a certain degree of superficial faith that we must avoid. And mark it, this applies in two ways. On the one hand, if you're here and you know you're not in Christ, I want you to know, and even if you're watching and you're not in Christ and you know it, I want you to know that we're grateful that you're here. I want you to know that we're grateful that you're hearing the word of God. I want you to know that we're grateful that you're, you're coming and positioning yourself under the umbrella of the truth of the Word of God. 
But I also want, to, want you to know this. I want you to recognize that no degree of attendance, no degree of exposure to Christianity from a distance that is heartless, no uh, extent of religion, religiosity can save you. Don't be the superficial, fickle person. Make a genuine heart commitment to follow Jesus today. Turn from your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you, right? He will save you. Trust him today. Begin following after him. On the other hand, if you're here and you do know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a follower of Christ. Can I ask you, brother, are you walking in fickleness and superficiality in your relationship with the Lord? Are you passionately, faithfully pursuing Jesus in the present, devoted to him, daily worshiping him? Or are you just going through the motions, lethargic, passive about your spiritual disciplines, passive about your pursuit of, of Jesus? Listen to me. Today is the day of renewal, Christian. Today is the day of renewal. Today is the day for confession and repentance. Today is a day where you can refocus, where you can recalibrate, where you can find renewal at the foot of the cross. To you too, I would say, as I would say to myself, be humble, Mary, in this passage. Be not the hardened person or the hostile person in our text. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a sobering passage. For me, beginning with me, Lord, as I studied this and the need to examine my own heart, and I pray for my brothers as well. Lord, how many examples have we seen over the course of our Christian journey of people that we love and we care for and even in the present that are there in that state of callousness and hardness of heart. Lord, help us not ever to lose hope, but to remember that you can do a miracle in those hearts even today. We pray that we would be prayerful men. And Lord... I pray that we would be humble men who would realize that, Lord, just because we're saved, that does not mean that we should take our salvation for granted. That we should be, Lord, men who are callous, who are indifferent to Christ, who are not fervent in our love for Jesus and our worship and our devotion and our wholehearted obedience to him. Lord, guard us. Help us to give heed to your word, to watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Oh, Lord. Teach us, teach us by your example what it means to be men who are passionate about pleasing God. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.